You've reached WDUG on your podcast style, offering today's best in political and historical chat. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. This is where they die. Hello, everyone. I hate to begin the pilot uh, episode of Hold the Line with an apology, but that's exactly what I'm going to do, uh, seeing as I have dragged my feet and made you guys wait and wait and wait for this to finally come out. Um, I think this is going to be kind of bumpy as I go along here, but I hope um, you kind of hang in there and stay with me. because I think this could be really helpful for all of us. Um, and for me, it's a really good way to communicate with everyone because I'm such a terrible texter <laughs> uh, and or uh, answerer of the phone. So um, it, this is going to be really fun for me um, to pass along, you know, the years and years and years of education in history specifically. Uh, to kind of tie it in for my family and hopefully friends. Um, So thank you for listening, and let's get into the show. I admire your honesty. As we look forward to the terrifying prospect, at least I think it should be terrifying uh, if you really dig into it, prospect of a second civil war, I think it'd be instructive to look back and see what caused well up until this point the only civil war that we've ever had and see how it really mirrors uh, or the reasons really mirror the reasons that we might have to have a secession of certain states within the country today the first reason i'm going to discuss is at least today a very little known effect that played a huge role on what would happen um, in the years or well really the decades leading up to the Civil War and that was the tariff of abominations the tariff of 1828 and what that was was a very high protective tariff um, Interestingly, it was a bill um, that was designed to not even pass through Congress. And it surprisingly did pass. And it's difficult to pin down why it really did, because it hurt um, both industry and farming and really kind of hurt the majority of the country. It really theoretically only helped one certain class of individuals and this will come up later because this is going to lead to a nullification crisis which i'm going to talk about later in the podcast but so what happened is that at this point um, in the united states history the only way that the federal government could pay its bills was through tariffs it did not have direct personal taxation as a matter of fact that didn't come into effect until the civil war when the northern 
government could no longer even come close to balancing its budget. And that's when we first get started getting direct personal taxation. But in this crisis, um, tariffs have been very, very low in our history, uh, which led to our economy absolutely booming, especially for such a young nation on the fringes of, of the, of the world at that point. Um, so what happened is that this raised the taxes on imported goods to 38%, which is an incredibly high rate and as high as 45% on some certain imported raw materials. Now, Southern states believed that this was unfair, that this was an infraction of the Equal Protections Clause in the Constitution because it protected northern factories by taxing imports from Europe. At least that was the one small group that it did protect. Southerners especially from the cotton belt, which cotton was king in the South. That That's very true. A lot of people think that it was tobacco, but by the late seven, mid-1700s, late 1700s, tobacco is so harsh on soil that it had stripped the nutrients right straight from the ground, and they could not, in in the type of quantities that we think of southern planters, just couldn't grow tobacco at the same rate anymore. So they quickly switched over to cotton and cotton was incredibly successful, uh, especially in the, the burgeoning uh, British empire um, that was moving into India, the subcontinent uh, into Australia had a huge need for cotton and the South was there to provide it. Um, so in the South, they felt that they were most harmed by this um, really harmed directly because they had to pay more for imports from Europe. So they would send the cotton over to London, let's say. They would manufacture the goods, then it would get shipped back over here. Well, the South was harmed because they had to pay significantly more for really getting their cotton back, their manufactured cotton back. This was, I guess, particularly felt in South Carolina. And in South Carolina, they had a politician by the name of John C. Calhoun, who really made his name during this crisis. Uh, he was a, a fiery, uh, actually a literally a fire eater is what they termed them um, back then. Uh, the politicians that would stand and bark and raise hell in Congress. Uh, so he led South Carolina in a, the, what became known as the nullification crisis of 1832 and 1833, where they decided to hell with this. This not only is kind of uh, draining our, our capital, our wealth from us and feeding it back into the North, but it's also unconstitutional. So he led uh, the South Carolina state government to nullify the bill, overwhelmingly nullify it. 
This forced Andrew Jackson, who also was a Southerner, a Tennessean at the time, who uh, John C. Calhoun, which actually is what Lake Calhoun uh, is named after, John C. Calhoun. Uh, they got in. Um, he thought he had an ally in Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was a staunch Unionist, although a Southerner, and uh, which led to the Force Bill which gave the president the right to basically march troops down into South Carolina to put this down. Uh, when he threatened that, South Carolina backed off. Andrew Jackson eased up on the tariffs and everything was okay for, well, another 28 years. But um, nullification hung very heavily over the, the country in its early history. Um, this crisis kind of put paid to the idea that the states really were the ones with the power. And they, the South, if moved in, in a block, because South Carolina tried to grab allies, but were terrified of actually having, you know, the army march down into their states. But the idea was planted that we could nullify bills that we thought were unconstitutional that unfairly benefited benefited other states over our own and that was a a big driving force the second was that the north we we have this idea that the north was just brimming with abolitionists, you know, uh, Christian, like, uh, pilgrims, Puritans running around, you know, denouncing slavery at every turn. And that actually is incredibly false. And I'm going to actually get into that on a separate podcast coming up here about the realities of, of slavery and how it was viewed in the country, um, both before and after the civil war. But the point is, is um, or the upshot of that is, is that uh, abolitionism, abolition, abolitionists never had more than four uh, percent, like popularity, um, within even the northern states. And when we started adding states there was this thing called the Missouri Compromise in 1820. And that was like the first time we started kind of dividing the country along a line, right? So the, the compromise was that all states added to the Union south of what became known as the Mason-Dixon line, those would be slave states, which by the way, slavery is hyper protected within the constitution. The Southerners were always following the constitution again, but we'll delve into that on another podcast. But as time marched on and new States were being added, Northerners started becoming increasingly concerned about the power of Southerners. Southerners had utterly dominated politics up until this point. Um, the vast majority of presidents up until that point had been, um, up until the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, had been Southerners. Uh, it, 
the uh, the writers the main writers of the constitution um madison with the help of like jefferson monroe they were southerners they were virginians and they felt dominated by southern slaveholding states and they were worried that that domination was only going to increase if we kept adding states south of the Mason-Dixon line. So the Mexican-American War broke out in 1846. And of course, we, you know, after being triumphant in that war, we added an enormous amount of territory all south of the Mason-Dixon line. It, I mean, except for, of course, uh, California parts, you know, the northern half of California. But so every time a new state was going to be added this huge constitutional crisis that like this was like almost a yearly thing to the point where we got so deadlocked that we couldn't we had trouble adding any states unless they were like demonstrably north or south so adding texas was not as easy as one would have assumed. It was actually a very, very tight vote and maybe shouldn't even even have passed. There, there was some finagling done. Um, but so when Missouri came in, that was going to be uh, a, like a toss-up state. But what happened is so many slave owners moved in that the state, even though it wasn't, technically a slave state it became a de facto state slave state um so that's when you hear of like burning kansas bleeding kansas excuse me uh there was this, this huge fight between the slave owning factions and white northerners moving in there that there was you know literally a a battle a, a, a war fought in Kansas just to see if this was going to be a slave state or a northern state. And in fact, the, the slave owners were really winning that fight. Kansas, by all rights, should have been a slave state, but it wasn't. So when Nebraska came up to be a state, that would have knocked the balance out. Um, Maine had just been made a state. Minnesota had been made a state in 1858. Nebraska was coming up and there was a real crisis um, that was impending because the, the southern states, now the, the, the balance of power had very quickly and dramatically shifted to the north. There was, you know, there was more northern senators. There was, uh, the north had a higher population, so they had more representatives. So even though the South, by and large, had dominated the presidency and kind of the general sentiment of politics up until the Civil War, in the mid-1850s, there was this demonstrable shift up to the North. And Southerners were terrified of losing all political power. Uh, and they didn't really have any recompense. They were saw this future in which they were going to be isolated to the south, southeastern part of the country. And that this there was really they, there was nothing that was going to change. They were kind of at their high watermark. In a way, they it was do or die 
1861. You could have made the case in 1860 or 1862, but more or less, this was the high watermark. And if they didn't do anything, they were going to kind of get, you know, squished out of existence uh, politically. And that was intolerable to them, especially considering that slavery was constitutional. It was, you know, it was written into the constitution. Um, and it's much more than slavery. It was the, the way of life, the way they're, you know, culturally, the, the, the amount of state authority that Southerners, um, that they, they Southerners truly believe that states superseded the union and they saw their political power, um, not just slipping away, but being stripped away by, you know, forces from the outside. And that would lead to, you know, civil war ultimately. And then the third, well, I guess those kind of go hand in hand as far as like the adding of states and the loss of political power. Um, the, you know, so I lost my train of thought. I'm going to stop here real quick, you guys. Forgive me. The third uh, part as I, I lost my train of thought, I was looking down at my notes, uh, was kind of like the one and one a of loss of political power when lincoln was elected uh as president they had at least in the eyes of southerners lost any semblance of political power that they had and the reason that i i, I chose these as the three main reasons for the civil war uh are well number one they were the three main reasons for the civil war ultimately but i think again like i had started this out with they so it's just simpatico to our times um and as much as if you look at um the addition of states puerto rico right dc statehood there that will be a huge shift in in political power creating new majorities new minorities just like that just like what happened in the north new majority new minority overnight and that's the loss of political power in america is the loss of power especially on the federal level the election of the false election of the biden harris ticket i think is what is ultimately going to when historians look back, you know, 100 years ago from the, you know, 50,000 feet high, you know, kind of atmospheric viewpoint, is they'll look back as very similar to the election of Lincoln. But try to view it as if you were a Southerner in 1860, because that's essentially what Republicans are right now. You, so what the South did is they more or less didn't even vote in the 1860 election. They, and because even if they had, if they had voted as a solid block, every citizen voting for uh, Stephen Douglas, 
they still would have lost the election. So they basically removed themselves, uh, at, which you know led to the election of Lincoln, um, and made them look like either, depending on the way you look at it, as morally superior or inferior, through whichever eyes you want to view that through. But um, how do we feel right now? How do Republicans, how do conservatives, how do even independents um, feel right now? Now, we did not not vote, but have our votes been discounted? Do we feel like our votes have been discounted by the false injection of votes into the system? I think it's a very similar sentiment and one that could ultimately lead to some sort of secession crisis. Happily, we now have a new email for the show. It's hold the line 1776. So just hold the line 1776 at protonmail.com. Proton, P R O T O N M A I L dot com. That's all I got for now. Sound good? Yes, sir! So, can we have another? Can we actually go to war as a nation again? Uh, can that war be predicated by the secession of? of states or a state followed by others um, that kind of collapsed the facade of modern America uh, had a domino effect in which it almost forced people to choose sides. Specifically, if your home state fell on one side or the other of, of kind of broke to your party affiliation. Um, because by definition, that's how this is going to go down if it does. Uh, this will not, of course, be have anything to do with slavery. Nothing so grand as that. But in some respects, it's, it's, it's even more important that we get this figured out because it's for the hearts and minds of not just ourselves, but for our children and our grandchildren, you know, for generations going forward into the future, because I don't think that America can stand the way that it is right now for many reasons. But I think that the way secession will occur is going to occur in much the same way that the first civil war did. And that's going to be through nullification you're starting to see different state legislatures, which is where the power should lie and uh, always was supposed to uh, constitutionally, are starting to grab back some of their power from the federal government again. And the more that they're emboldened to take that power back, the more they're going to feel emboldened to say, at least within state governments, that the, the, this law that's coming from without, from Washington, D.C., simply burdens us too greatly. 
It's unfair. It's an unfair law to us. In 1828, in 1832, that was tariffs, as we've discussed. Today, I think it's going to fall in in two different places. The first is going to be the addition of new states. And now this can be enacted through a simple majority of the Congress and Senate, which is just asinine on the face of it. But what will happen in that scenario is when a new state is added, just like as it was in Missouri and Kansas and when they were fighting over Texas and later New Mexico um, prior to the Civil War, is that a new state, and in our scenario, it will be two new states, which is, I mean, it'll be so overpowering that it's going to force some states' hands, or, or at least some people within parties' hands, I think, that adding a new state always creates a new majority and a new minority. And that is to say that, as you've heard in the news and um, you know, I'm sure on Fox and Newsmax and everything, Ben Shapiro, that if D.C. and Puerto Rico are added as states, it will create a division of power going in the Democrats' favor, the leftist Marxist favor, that we cannot ever be defeated by regular constitutional means. A national election cannot fix that because not only will there be four new senators added, but the pie will be cut even greater amongst states as far as representatives go. Because at the turn of the 20th century, when they decided to cap out um, representatives at 435, that hasn't moved since then and i don't see that happening now some states like wyoming and i believe montana only have a single representative for the whole entire state they have two senators but one representative but that'll stay the same that won't go away but for instance in a state like minnesota which is already facing an uphill climb to keep their eight reps now we would probably go down to six. So Minnesota could very easily argue that the loss of their power, of their, their um, share of the federal government is harmed by adding these new states. Now, of course, we know the way Minnesota is controlled by the DFL. I don't think there'll be too many you know, people complaining about that at least in the government, but we'll just use Minnesota as our example. So what would happen? Let's say in 2022, 2024, Republicans keep making gains and they have both the House and the Senate in the Minnesota state legislature. And now they're freshmen and sophomore and some kind of like hardened junior um representatives and they say no we are going to nullify that law well now you have a really serious problem because if it's just minnesota 
the federal government could really quite readily come down on the on us and say, well, we're going to force you to accept that law. And this gets really deep into constitutional minutiae, but in just the broadest strokes. Now you have a nullification crisis where the federal government would have to come in and force Minnesota to accept that new change in dynamic between federal government and state government, like our power within that. And the only means that they can force us, to coerce us to come back in, and this is what happened with South Carolina and ultimately the South in general, um, you know, prior to the Civil War, is that they would have to send in federal troops into Minnesota to forcibly make us accept that law, at least the government accept that law. And now you can easily see how that could fly totally out of control, right? Um, moreover, you would have a really delicate situation of forcing uh, you know, active members of the military that are from Minnesota, uh, for instance, Joe, to fight against their own family and friends, i.e., generally in Virginia, well, basically all of the Southern generals uh, in the Civil War. Also, it would force the National Guard, the Minnesota National Guard, to pick sides. Do they federalize and force their own, uh, you know, again, friends and family, relatives, to, <laughs> you know, to put them down by the boot heel? I don't know. That that's a that's a tough one. Now, if you expand that out, that idea, let's say that Wisconsin and Michigan and Iowa and North Dakota and South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Nebraska, Kansas, let's say all of us formed a block and we all agreed, my God, we lose our representation in in the federal government like that. And we formed a a union, a breakaway state, and defined our borders as such. You know, if we really went to the mat on this one thing, which is not a small thing, there's going to be a drop down, drag out fight about these states. And it's not going to be happening on the federal level. Not, not to the degree it's going to be happening in state houses all across the country. Now, you have what would be in essence a foreign nation within the nation of the United States. And would that nation, would in this case Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, use the military to actively fight against the citizens in those states? And would those states be part of the United States anymore? This is very great in the constitution and it still is a lot of people talk about i think it's the 15th amendment uh added at, at after the civil war um 
where they state that it's just an impossibility. States can't secede anymore. That's another aspect of this. Well, states theoretically couldn't secede. It really has to do with the way you read the Constitution and continue to. But um, at a certain point, it doesn't really matter what the Constitution says anymore if though if that block, our our theoretical block, says we simply are not going to follow the United States law anymore. You know, unless you pull back and say, well, we're not adding Puerto Rico and DC as states any longer. My assumption is what would happen in this scenario is they would talk about adding upping the amount of congressional seats. Um, I, I That doesn't really get anywhere because I know I'm going off kind of on a tangent here, but Madison, his idea of the proper just amount of representatives equaled out to one representative for every 30,000 citizens. You know, that's untenable in our scenario today because I think we'd have our own 10,500 representatives and you could get nothing done. It'd be worse than a third world parliament. Um, but alternatively, if our population continues to keep going up as it has by the beginning of the next century, there'll be about one representative for every million Americans. Think about that. The idea behind the Constitution and the way the House of Representatives was set up was that it, there was about one representative for every 30,000 people. Soon, soon, it'll be one representative for every million people. So the idea of adding <laughs> a 10 or 15 representatives is really, it doesn't matter, like in the grand scheme of things. So, and it really doesn't deal with many other issues that we can talk about. Again, send any questions, ideas, thoughts to hold the line, 1776 at protonmail.com. I check that every single day. So I would love to have that. It would help the show immensely to know what you're thinking or what you want to talk about. But back on that. So, Again, so now the federal government has to come in and fight its own citizens. What do we do? What do the citizens within our new theoretical nation do? If you have hardcore liberals that want to flee, do are they allowed to flee? Can they leave? Are our borders going to be porous or are we going to put roadblocks and are we going to use our own National Guard? Or would we try to quasi-federalize our own National Guard units? It's a nightmare and could easily escalate into a full-scale civil war before we even know what's happening. Now, would there be civil war? This is where I worry much more about war spilling into the streets. So let's say in Minneapolis, would there be actual civil war once there was a constitutional breakdown and we... You know, because we would have to form a league, so to speak, 
that's where I could see people act, like legitimately getting into hand-to-hand fighting because you would lose that there'd be such a vacuum of power you know the second major stumbling block and i think would be unavoidable that we would be you know on a just hell-bent on a path to civil war is if they try to restrict deny or entirely remove our protections surrounding the second amendment there are already uh i'm pulling up a map right here um of uh oh good grief i'm trying to find i'm sorry you guys of yeah here it is i'm sorry of sanctuary counties um all throughout the United States. Now the map that I'm looking at was from August of last year and there's it's being updated almost by the day of new sanctuary counties within the country. And there are already oh I think there's 22 states that have at least one county with a second amendment sanctuary. And they're spread all throughout the country. They go from Washington all the way from Flo- to down to Florida, from Virginia straight across to Northern California. Minnesota has a handful of counties that are Second Amendment sanctuaries. Now that would precipitate a civil war in a way that would, like I was saying, would almost be unavoidable because it would come down, quite frankly, to... They would they would be compelled to come and take the guns you know it, it no matter how cutesy they were about it there would be a certain point where they they would have to use federal forces to remove guns from people's homes and from militias now as this occurs i, I militia units are their enrollments are increasing dramatically, specifically in Pennsylvania, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Montana. Uh, Montana is one of the most interesting cases in this that is that they actually don't have any counties that have a Second Amendment sanctuary. But I think it's one of those things where they haven't felt the need to do it yet, but in this scenario, if they really do start coming after the Second Amendment, now you would see a very interesting block of states that might be willing to secede and nullify that federal law, and they might be constitutionally correct by doing it. You see, in null- in the idea of nullification Generally, it's the idea of a state, a state, nullifying a federal law and saying this, this is unequal. Uh, it, you know, um, I can't think of the right that I'm looking for, but it's it's an unfair law for the people of our state. In this scenario, the federal government would actually be breaking its own constitution to try to enact a new law. 
So it's an extremely slippery slope. Another area of concern or another crisis that could precipitate a national civil war would be if a state like Texas decided that the Equal Protections Clause was not protecting their state in the same way that it was or is other states. Now, this could happen in the form of any the Second Amendment, uh, of illegal taxes, of uh, maybe unlawful statehood, but it could also happen if they feel that the safety of the citizens of Texas were, was being harmed or threatened by their, the inability of the state to guard, uh, maintain its own border with Mexico. Now, Texas is the 14th largest economy in the world. If it was just a breakaway, and that's growing, you know, uh, by the end of the decade, you know, it could move into the top 10 with the way businesses are flocking there. Um, so if Texas was to break away, it almost, with I mean, without question, it would peel off much of what we think of as the old South. I mean, I think along with it, there would be some understanding with like Florida to kind of be the two like kind of buttresses or bulwarks of this new union or anti-union. Um, so if you had Florida and Texas holding, you know, West East it, along with it, you like in those two States orbits, which are, are the third and fourth largest States in the electoral college um, behind New York and California, I'm pretty sure they might, they might even be two and four, but you would see Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, those would slip off right away. And at that point, you'd go, my God, this is a second civil war. And you'd have this, uh, this pull where it'd almost be like magnetic pulling, pulling conservatives, uh, free-minded, even independent people down there because they would feel safer, protected um, in this new nation. And in this scenario, the federal government would have a very real fight on its hands. Um, the only... Uh, if you imagine the majority, if not all of the soldiers from those states, which is the U.S. Army uh, military in general is made up like almost entirely of recruits from the southern, southeastern United States. Uh, the only thing that the federal government would really have going for it is its Navy. And that would be a real difficulty for any fledgling nation unless those states move to quickly secure their ports. Then all bets are off, and we can have that discussion 
on a later podcast. But so what would be really interesting is how states that aligned um, politically, ideologically, ideolo- I can't say it. I'm going to give up on that. Uh, with Texas, with Florida, with Mississippi, Alabama, such as North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Utah, Idaho. You can kind of reel them off in your head. Even Wisconsin and Iowa, they would find common cause, affinity with this new nation, right? So it would be entirely crippling to the United States, uh, especially if you had a new nation formed within the, the United States that was continental, you know, in as much as, um, you know, it went from North to South and did go, you know, not the coast, but just inside the coast, you know, from West to East or East to West. Right. Then you would find parts of States peeling off. And now you'd be in a death struggle. You know, you would have the coasts and then, you know, maybe, maybe the Midwest, uh, Colorado is a lot redder than you think. Then you would see this is where it would be really interesting because you would it would almost be like the most briefest of revolutions of, of civil wars in, in as much as the federal government couldn't possibly stand up to a force like that. They're, they're just, it wouldn't even be worth the challenge because it would just tear apart the United States. So, I mean, there would be, Oh, it would be chaos beyond anything that we could really comprehend. Uh, all transportation transportation systems would be destroyed um, overnight uh, because you you couldn't ship anything anywhere. Um, Canada and Mexico, believe it or not, would be drug into the conflict because their economies are so heavily dependent on the United States, and frankly, the rest of the world would be drug into this. So, I don't think that's something we would really hope for or desire but i think ultimately when you look at a map of what we think of as the united states let's say 100 years from now it's going to look a lot different i think there's going to be confederated states that are part of a larger country but they're not beholden to one federal government it's just become too unwieldy very much like it was in 1861, and yet we've trundled along this far. I think the the scariest part of Civil War, the one that I think people most frequently think of is, you know, where you're like, you see fighting in the streets and paramilitary groups. The only way that I could imagine that kind of um, popping off, uh, turning into a hot war, is if somehow white Americans were pushed into such a, such a a terrible corner that they just 
had to do something um, to regain some sort of footing, some sort of stability within their own country. Now, you might think this is crazy, but that's more or less what drove the the white Southerners into rebellion. Uh, to give you some evidence, a recent um, poll from Donald Trump, this was January 2021, uh, express it asked to express their views on some very interesting topics one of them was and i'll just read these off systemic racism in america is a real and serious problem 10 percent of people agreed with that 39 percent strongly disagreed 29 percent said they that they disagree somewhat that's 68 percent of the respondents in this agree or disagreed entirely that systemic racism is a real problem. White people have an advantage in today's America because of the color of their skin. 5% of people strongly agreed with that. 51% strongly disagreed and 29% disagreed somewhat. That's 80% to 5%. I worry that discrimination against whites will increase a lot in the next few years. 59% of the people strongly agreed with that. 28% agreed somewhat. That's 87%. 4% disagreed strongly. Another thing that almost scared my socks off of me was I was reading a paper uh, written by um, Chris Arkenberg, and he is a high-level analyst and strategist. Um, he's worked for the government um, and a number of Fortune 500 companies. He wrote this in 2017, and he wrote, to counter this emerging threat that is white Americans, and I'm not in any way joking about this, to counter this emerging threat in America, it's critical to establish more formal practices for identifying and tracking domestic extremism with an honest recognition that young white males on both ends of the political spectrum are the most likely to commit violence. Likewise, we must formalize robust network analysis to map and track these distributed groups across their digital territories and to identify their backers funders, and agitators. Finally, there needs to be a very serious conversation about how to regulate Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter as platforms for influence, instigation, propaganda, and recruiting. This is in 2017. If people keep feeling like their back is against the wall and it's only going to get worse, what are they left to do at that point? I, I, that's when violence occurs. And I don't see this getting better. I think that Chris Arkenberg is correct in his analysis that young white men are getting angry, have been angry, 
and are going to be increasingly more angry unless there's some sort of pressure valve released pretty soon. Because you can only ratchet up the tension so hard on a, a, a group of people before, well, the dam bursts. They, you, you can only take so much. As I noted earlier, in large part, at least psychologically, the Civil War started because a race of people, that is to say Southerners, believed that they were more highly productive and much better educated, far more successful, and a richer economically, culturally, a more textured culture than what Northerners had was being literally and figuratively pushed into a corner. And at a certain point, human nature being what human nature is, violence is going to occur. And in an asymmetrical war like that, that's where you could get what I started this all out with, uh, by asking the question, could a hot civil war begin in which it's like mob violence and, and group against group? In this case, I think we're edging ever, ever closer to that. And strangely, my feeling, like in the final analysis, is that we are going to see a secession in the United States. It's going to be precipitated by a nullification crisis. I don't know which state is going to have the guts to do it. It could be Florida with DeSantis. It could be Texas. It's going to have to be one of the big boys. Uh, Ohio is pretty vanilla as far as its politics goes. I, I wouldn't see that as a likely scenario where Ohio would all of a sudden throw down all its cards, you know? or push all their chips in, using up all my analogies here. But it's strange for me to have the feeling that I'd rather see a whole state secede than to continue to have this devolve into some sort of race crisis. Because that's when you get into the list of civil wars that are ongoing. All of the civil wars that I mentioned, and many more, these are all racial conflicts. It, it, it's not like opposing political factions. And in our case, it, I guess you could also describe it as an ideolo ideological... I can't say this today. My God, I'm embarrassed. I wish I could erase this, but I can only record these in blocks. Ideolo ideological, I, oh my God, I hope you guys are getting a good laugh at this. I, I say that word all the time, but now I can't say it tonight. Uh, I better put a sounder in here. There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again. What are you people, on dope? A last point that I wanted to make um, regarding this topic uh, as far as people feeling uh, 
isolated or their vote being uh, diluted or specifically um, white Americans feeling like they are being kind of shunted aside and marginalized is the newest uh, Biden bill um, that is, well, they're going to attempt to grant citizenship to 11 million illegal aliens. And I think this kind of just goes, <laughs> I, I don't really need to add anything to this, but um, the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 is going to be, um, it's on its pathway to um, going in front of the Congress, which will be, uh, well, a pathway to citizenship for 11 million illegals and expands the refugee resettlement program. Any of these things could spark off a civil war, a secession, and I think any one of them, if put in front of SCOTUS, to make them allow or, or give the okay to the presidency to use the Jacksonian force bill of 1833, I think they would face a very uphill uh, run at it, although who knows these days. Worse? How could they get any worse? Take a look around you, Ellen. We're at the threshold of hell. <laughs> this next thought comes to us directly from Patriot Angie, who came up with a curious question or thought um, submitted to us by Patriot Heidi here at Hold the Line. Uh, Angie was curious, well, if Donald Trump could effectively be impeached for his actions after the riot had already started, and that's what this fiasco had turned into, what it had devolved into, the, this clown show, uh, after they figured they couldn't, make their point with any sort of like integrity or, or uh, facts. Um, they decided, well, let's go after this weird phone call that McCarthy had or something. But anyway, the upshot of that is if, if president Trump could be impeached for that, why can't governor walls be impeached for his actions following the George Floyd real riots? And I think that's a spot on and a fascinating thought. Inasmuch as if, for instance, our two senators from the great state of Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar and Tina Smith, who is literally the least well-known senator uh, that's in the Senate right now, which is says a lot about who she is and what she's about. If they felt obligated to impeach our great president, do they not feel as equally duty-bound, compelled to work to impeach the sitting governor of Minnesota? Because I, the more that I think about it, it is a completely logic, logical argument. It follows A plus B plus C. It equals D. 
And I'm going to read you two things quickly. I hope you don't get too bored. Um, the first one, this comes from the New York Post. This is back from August. And the headline reads, Minneapolis Mayor Blames Governor Tim Walls for Ignoring Warnings About Riots. And I think this touches on both points that the Democrats kept trying to throw on to Donald Trump. Minnesota Governor Tim Walz reportedly ignored repeated warnings from the mayor of Minneapolis about brewing violence in the city after the May death of George Floyd and rebuffed his request to deploy the National Guard. In a bombshell interview with the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Mayor Jacob Frey said Walls failed to act after Frey repeatedly raised the alarm about growing unrest in the city that led to widespread looting and the torching of a police precinct and hundreds of other buildings. Frey said he called Walls, a fellow Democrat, on the second night of unrest to warn him that a Target store was being looted and asked him to send in troops, which Walls eventually did days later. The city of Minneapolis sustained more than $55 million in property damage from looting and protests demanding justice for Floyd's death at the hands of white police officers. We expressed the seriousness of the situation. The urgency was clear, Frey told the Star Tribune. He did not say yes, Frey said of Walls. He said he would consider it. Days later, Walls stood outside the smoldering 3rd Precinct Police Station and accused Frey of losing control of his city, calling the response an abject failure. Frey described it as being hit in the gut. So, adding in the element that his daughter, either, and perhaps both, was sitting in on like very high level meetings involving her father and let's say uh, the general uh, in charge of the Minnesota National Guard, uh, Minneapolis police, St. Paul police, because remember she texted out the movements of the National Guard and police those following days, or he told her about it. Both of those are terrifying offenses to the people of Minnesota. Far, far worse than President Trump not calling off the dog, so to speak, quickly enough. The second thing that I'm going to read you is, I hope this gives you a little bit of sunshine, Angie. I actually met uh, this representative, uh, Eric Mortensen, uh, and he's a young, bright guy uh, seems like your neighbor, just a cool guy that's uh, gotten involved in politics and he's raising a real stir, um, especially being for a freshman lawmaker. Um, Eric Mortensen, uh, which is a S-E-N, if you're curious, E-R-I-K. Um, so this comes from Southwest News Media. And this is dated, I think, just from, yeah, February 9th. Uh, House District 58, 55A Rep. Eric Mortensen of Shakopee co-sponsored articles of impeachment against Democratic Governor Tim Walz on February 8th, along with two other state legislatures. Uh, state legislators, excuse me. So his articles 
uh, I'm mostly um, looking at Walls's vast overreach of his emergency powers. Um, but in it, it's it's all kind of intermingled in his executive overreach. And I think that we should all try to get behind, um, especially Eric Mortensen, especially. Um, but I'll finish going through this. Um, last spring, the legislature approved Wall's implementation of peacetime emergency powers to buy time for testing and hospital bed capacity and to keep COVID-19 numbers at bay. Since then, the governor's emergency powers have been a source of contention between House Republicans and Democrats. And in his first few weeks in office, Mortensen's voice has been at the helm of that discussion. The impeachment resolution, which faces long odds in the DFL-controlled House. Now, we have the Senate, believe it or not. In Minnesota, we uh, actually have a majority, the Republicans. Um, so that's good. Uh, but we'll get into that in following episodes about how weak need they are. But uh, so the uh, the... Two of the articles accuse Walls of failing to respect the separation of powers outlined in the state constitution by creating new laws with his executive orders and setting penalties for violating them. The other articles charge that he has violated Minnesota's right to the free exercise of religion, that he illegally seized private property by closing businesses and halting evictions, and that he harmed Minnesotans by delaying elective medical procedures. Um, now, I know Eric Mortensen is very um, considerate. He's very um, agreeable to the idea of perhaps adding uh, to his articles of impeachment regarding the misuse of funds stemming from uh, the, the George Floyd riots. And I think it would behoove all of us to contact Eric, uh, to contact um, your local Minnesota congressional and Senate representatives. In Hugo, um, not sure if Angie, you still live there anymore, but um, your local representatives are Amy Wazlawick, which is W-A-Z-L-A-W-I-K. She's a DFLer. And Roger Chamberlain, who's a Republican. And for everybody else, uh, you can real easily look up um, who your representative is in your district at GIS, that's G like golf, IS dot L E G dot MN. And there's a real quick search. Uh, engine. I think you can actually just even type in your city and up will pop uh, the names you're looking for. And I think as a group, we can start um, an email uh, kind of campaign. And so if anyone's interested in that, send me an email at the show. <laughs> just kidding. I don't have an email set up for that yet, but I will. I think I'll try to set up hold the line at gmail.com but I will tell you more about that later. If I were the man I was five years ago, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Hold your line. We'll be back soon 
with a new podcast, hopefully one a little bit cleaner, a little bit sharper than this one, but I hope it held your attention and gave you some listening pleasure for a little while. Please, please send any thoughts, ideas, questions, anything you'd like me to elaborate on. Again, to hold the line, 1776 at protonmail.com. That's P-R-O-T-O-N mail.com. I would love to hear from you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. It isn't every day. Good fortune comes my way. I never thought the future would be fun for me. So if I had a bugle, I would blow it to add that final victory touch. But since I left my bugle home, I'll simply have to say thank you very, very, very much. For what? Arresting me for what? I'm not allowed to stand up for myself? I thought this was America. Huh? Isn't this America? I'm sorry, I thought this was America.